I love growing potatoes. I love growing potatoes just as much as I enjoy eating potatoes, which is a lot. Potatoes don't need to be started in a greenhouse. They require minimal water, almost zero weeding, and every time you dig up a potato hill, it's like a surprise every time. Unfortunately, compared to other vegetables, potato farming is pretty hard on the soil. It requires a lot of soil disturbance, and that's obviously not great for soil health. But there are ways to do spuds that aren't so hard on the land. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're talking about regenerative potato farming. Welcome to Season 3, folks. All right, just before I lose all of you who do not have the same passion for potatoes that I have, this episode is actually not just about potatoes. In fact, I'd argue potatoes are secondary to other themes like cover cropping, companion cropping, integrating livestock into cropping systems, biodiversity, soil health, and just a general paradigm shift in agriculture. The person being interviewed just happens to be a potato farmer. The potato farmer in question is a fourth-generation farmer named Brandon Rocky who runs Rocky Farms in Center, Colorado. He was actually up our way in 2019. He spoke at the Soil Health and Grazing Conference in uh, Edmonton. Rocky Farms sells both seed and market potatoes, but it's everything else they have going on in their farm that makes this a really interesting story. That's where the companion cropping, cover cropping, and integrating livestock all come in. You'll notice pretty quickly the person doing the interview isn't me. The interviewer is Steve Canyon, who along with his wife, Amber Canyon, run Greener Pastures Ranching in Busby, Alberta, so just west of Edmonton. Amber was actually on one of our very first podcast episodes. If you download episode 9, so Adaptive Agriculture, You can hear Amber speak, and we interviewed Steve Canyon for our farmer's blog. In fact, and we're pretty proud of this at Rural Roots, if you Google Regenerative Farming Alberta, the article we did on Steve is actually the top search result. Amber is also the outreach officer for an applied research group called Gateway Research Organization, or GROW. They're based in Westlock. I have to give Amber and Grow a lot of credit because when COVID hit last year, they were pretty quick to pivot and adapt to the fact that we just couldn't do in-person events anymore like workshops and field days. Every Wednesday night starting at 6 p.m., Grow hosts an online networking session for producers on Zoom. Last one I was on had over 100 producers on it from across the country, and I think even Gabe Brown was on it recently. And then there's Grow's Coffee Shop series on YouTube, which produced the audio of Brendan and Steve having a casual chat about regenerative agriculture, the audio that we use for this podcast episode. So big thank you to Amber and Grow for sharing the audio with us. I was somewhat surprised when I went to Rocky Farm's website to discover that there's actually no reference or not a reference I could find to regenerative agriculture on the website. They do talk about something called biotic farming, which is something I never heard of before. The word biotic, if you look it up in the dictionary, the definition is coming from or relating to living organisms. If you think of antibiotics, it's the exact opposite. They're obviously killing living organisms, mainly bacteria. 
Rocky Farms is probiotic, which has very little to do with yogurt, but everything to do with working with the diversity of living organisms that dwell above and below ground. Okay, well, welcome uh, to our coffee shop talk. Um, we are just, you know, going to sit down and uh, shoot the breeze here and talk about what we normally talk about at a coffee shop. I see you're in a, a greenhouse by the looks of it, though. You know, with the timing of when you wanted to have this interview, and I don't have much growing out in the fields right now, so I like having something green behind me when I'm talking, you know, if we're going to start talking farming. So, I mean, actually here in a school greenhouse, uh, we've been working with our one of the local FFA chapters, and they're growing potatoes for me. <clears throat> so part of what we do since we grow certified seed is we, we personally grow potatoes in a greenhouse year-round production to grow mini tubers, and those get planted out in the field each year. So this FFA here had a greenhouse that was sitting vacant. So they basically take some of my real small potatoes, they'll plant them here, grow them out and then at the end of the year i'll buy them back from them so they're they're doing the labor growing the crop for me harvesting them and at the end of the year it makes a really nice fundraiser for them so it's really, oh, really hands-on so it's been a really cool project we've been this is i think we're on year number seven so oh, neat. just yeah so i, I thought it'd make a very good educational round. for them yeah well it's just you know you, you could come into a class and talk about growing potatoes all day long but until they actually do it themselves I mean, that brings a whole nother level of appreciation and understanding. So, I mean, they go through the whole process and it's, it's a full certified crop. We get inspectors out here. They certify the crop just, just like they would on my greenhouse. And so they get to interact with the inspectors. They get to interact with me and hopefully they get a, you know, think a little bit about where those potatoes will end up. So, yeah, I think it's a really good opportunity. So Brendan, just for the, uh, all the viewers out there, give me a real quick synopsis of what your operation is, where you're at and what you do. I'm in center Colorado. So that's the south central part of Colorado. Uh, we're pretty high elevation. So we're 7,600 feet and we're technically deserts. So we're less than six inches of annual precipitation. So everything's obviously irrigated here. Without irrigation, we would not be farming here. Uh, we grow potatoes. We focus on specialty potatoes. Usually have about 25 different varieties. We do them both for fresh market and for uh, seed production. Uh, we sell the seed all across country, really focus on seed catalogs and smaller farmers. Um, the things that kind of make it stand out is I am on a two-year rotation. So I rotate my potatoes with a diverse cover crop. Uh, it's about a 16 species mix we got growing right now. Uh, the main reason we did that was for water conservation. We did in, we started bringing in cattle to graze on top of the, the cover crops, uh, cattle and sheep. Actually, we had both out there this year on different fields. And so that's been really good. Uh, bringing in the cover crops was our introduction to plant diversity. Really saw a lot of value there, so became obsessed with it. So I started bringing in diversity into the potato crop as well. So I plant companion crops in my potatoes. I plant uh, four different legumes and buckwheat directly into the potato crop. And then since we are growing certified seed, managing aphid is a really high priority. So the way I manage our aphid is by planting a lot of flowering plants on the farm to provide habitat and a food source for the beneficial insects. And hopefully that's enough to manage the aphid for me. So that's, that's us in a nutshell. 
just in case you're like me, you're not super well-versed in potato viruses. Potato virus Y, and yes, that's the actual name, it's transmitted by aphids feeding off of potato plants. A potato plant infected by potato virus Y will produce fewer potatoes and smaller potatoes. I have absolutely no idea if this is an issue in Alberta. I meant to call the potato growers of Alberta before I started recording, but I completely forgot. So sorry about that. Excellent. Perfect. Uh, I guess a quick description of our operation. We're from uh, uh, near Edmonton, Alberta. Um, Our company is called Greener Pastures Ranching, and we do a custom grazing operation. So uh, compared to your operation, it's pretty simple. We just graze cows on pasture. (laughs) We just do a lot of of rotation, and uh, we are working with some grain farmers as well. I've got one grain farmer who's actually really excited. Been working with him on and off for quite a few years, since 2002 actually, grazing his, you know, uh, salvage crops or things that you know it didn't work for him then we we bring our cows in there but um, two years ago he came to me and said that he wanted me to take over a piece of his land um, and then have cows there on that pasture to be able to move those cows onto his grain land and he wants to be able to cover all of his grain land with that so so we do both you know working on the grain fields with with the neighbor and we we do a rotational grazing system so our system's a little bit different than most because we don't own the cattle and we actually don't own the land. Um, right. We're pretty close to the city of Edmonton and land values are really high. So it just doesn't make sense. Agriculture can't pay for that. So we, we lease all of our land. We lease about 3,500 acres and uh, we bring in custom cattle, kind of like a private community pasture. So that's our, that's us in a nutshell. Okay. So that's one thing I was trying to remember from what I did hear your talk is you don't, you don't own the livestock that you're managing. Is that correct? Yeah, we, we uh, bring in custom cattle. There's some, sometimes I have a year round herd, so I will take a herd on and I'll manage the whole herd, you know, calving, feeding, grazing, everything. Um, And then other years we just do the summer. Um, We might not have any animals during the winter or we'll bring in a different herd for the winter because we have a swath grazing available or, or something. So it changes up lots. It, you know, we're, we're pretty flexible and customers come and go. And, um, but yeah, we never, never seem to have trouble finding customers. Well, good. And that's one thing that was a challenge for us when we wanted to get animals out on our, our farm is I, I really didn't want to go own livestock because I, I need the livestock, you know, a couple months out of the year. And I really didn't have to want to have to raise them the other 10 months. So it was really finding a guy that had the livestock that needed the feed when I had the feed available. So we're real fortunate in finding the guy we have that comes out and the, the size of his herd matches up really well with our acreage. And, and just, we've had to learn to kind of coexist a little bit, I guess, you know, as the farmer, I've got certain goals and as the rancher, he's got certain goals and we just kind of had a, a little bit of give and take. Um, I mean, ideally on my perspective, if his herd was 10 times the size, if he could come in and be in and out in a week, that'd be great. Yeah. But that's not realistic for him. So he has to come in with his size of herd and we have to figure out how to manage it to meet that. And it, it, we've been doing it for several years now. And I feel like this year was pretty stress-free and I, I like the end results. I really like growing the potatoes after the animals have left and, and that part of it I really like. So it is a little extra work on my end, but it, it's worth that effort. Plus he's paying me some pasture rent. So yeah. that's a nice incentive there too, because I'm going to grow the cover crop either way. 
So yeah. if somebody wants to pay me a little bit to have the livestock out there, that that's just a bonus for us. And then you get the biology with the, with the livestock too. Big bonus. Yeah. And I, I do feel like that's <clears throat> one thing where I, I, I argue with guys a little bit. You know, people see the manure that's out there after the cattle have left and they everybody automatically thinks, oh, that's great that you added fertility to your soil by doing that. But really explaining to them, I haven't added anything. All I've done is cycle what's already out there. So I yeah. still have fertility inputs that I have to come in with later on to offset what I've removed through harvest. But just yeah. having them running that crop through the animal, it's amazing what it does biologically. Like I said, oh, it's, yeah. it's been great for soil structure, the carbon, the fertility, all of that's been great. But it's not, it's not replacing some other input. Yeah, the biology from the herbivore has a symbiotic relationship with the soil biology, right? They work together, and that's that's a huge bonus that most people don't don't get, right? Yeah. There's uh, there's biology in the manure, there's biology in the urine, there's biology in their saliva, there's biology in their snot, there's yep. biology off their hair coats, right? And it all intermixes. So I, yeah, just having those animals out there is so important. Well, and just real obvious ones too. I mean, I would not have dung beetles out there if I didn't have any dung. Yeah. You, know, you go hand in hand. Yeah. So, you, know, you got to put the dung out there first. And it's amazing. You'll, you know, in these areas where they haven't seen manure forever, you put a cow pie out there and the dung beetles just appear. And it just, that part yep. blows my mind. How, how that, yeah. everything just comes together. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> yeah. Yep. They're, uh, yep. they're, they're pretty mobile, those critters. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really yeah. good. So once again, it just, like I said, we were talking about basics and keeping it simple, right? I mean, it really is that simple. Put some manure out there. You can really yeah. keep it that basic. Yeah. The best manure composter you'll ever have. Yep. Or the best uh, compost tea yep. uh, applicator you'll ever, ever have. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's one, one place I've always kind of struggled a little bit too, but just vermicompost right running compost through warm beds it has its place i've used it in, in greenhouse situations yeah. before in this environment you see some benefit from it but just the time and energy that goes into making this vermicompost whereas i'm like well can't we just put the compost out in the field and if you have a good population of worms you're gonna end up there right yeah so i, I don't necessarily see the benefit of putting that extra time and energy in in expense into some of those things when when we can accomplish it in more economic ways yeah for sure let the cow do the work for you yeah i like how brendan put it right there by incorporating livestock into his operation he's not adding fertility to the soil he's cycling fertility back into the soil which makes total sense what goes in the cow's mouth needs to come out and it's likely going to come out either as manure or urine but since i'm not an agronomist and i'm really i'm like a barely skilled farmhand i was wondering why not cut out a step why not let that cover crop grow up go to seed fall over decompose you know why not just cut out the middle cow so there's a couple problems with this. The first one would be Brendan wants to put potatoes into that land eventually and that would leave an awful mess. Second problem would be very much like with baling hay, you want to cut that cover crop before it heads out while the plant itself is full of nutrients. So instead of spending money on tractor fuel, 
sending the cattle, their rumen speeds up the release of nitrogen from plants anyways. And on top of that, you can get paid by a local rancher just because you seeded in a cover crop. Since they mentioned dung beetles, I feel this is the perfect opportunity to do the very first Rural Roots of Climate Solutions shout out to the dung beetle. Dung beetle, you are an amazing creature. Who else would push a ball of manure that's the size of them all the way underground to really get that nitrogen into the soil? I know I ain't doing it. So uh, when we have coffee and you go to the coffee shop, you're supposed to talk about the neighbors, aren't you? Oh, sure. We can do that. Well, what do you <laughs> want to know about up, I got some dirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The problem is with the coffee shop, it always ends up being negative. So my, my yeah. challenge to you is tell me a, something positive about one of your neighbors. Well, you know, there's there's a whole group of young guys, you know, younger than me, that are doing some good things around here. And when I started making some changes on my farm, I, the reception was a little cold. And I, I feel like it's because I was so young at the time. But now that I'm a little bit older and there's a younger generation coming up behind me, they seem a lot more open-minded to, to the different things we're doing. So a couple of things we're seeing I'll definitely a lot more of this year driving around. Um, a lot more covered crops. That's something that's really been coming in pretty strong the last 10 years. But I'm seeing a lot more livestock grazing the cover crops. That's Good. become real, real accepted around here to the point where I think guys are going to start fighting over the animals a little bit, trying to make sure they're the first on the list to get the, the livestock out on their ground because we've been doing it long enough now that guys are starting to see the long-term impacts from it. And I think we've done a lot to eliminate the fear that comes with it. Because anytime you bring in something new, everybody's real worried about doing something new, but it's really nothing to worry about and a lot of, lot of positives that come from it. So that, that's been really nice to see. Oh, good. Right on. Yeah, no. So what you basically said at the beginning there is that as you get older, you get wiser. Is that what you said? Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. I, I, you would hope some, some wisdom comes along with the age for sure. So one, one question for you. Sure. How did you get into regenerative potato farming? Like what, what was there a, a certain time when it just switched? Was there a, a presentation, a person or something that, that really kickstarted you? Um, I will say my uncle was probably the biggest catalyst. Um, so I was in high school at the time and he was the one doing, growing the crops and I was pretty close to him. And the thing that really drove him to change was he just was really becoming concerned with his personal exposure to chemicals. He didn't, he didn't like reading the labels on these jugs of chemicals and, and reading, you know, all the warnings oh, yeah. and the personal equipment you have to wear. And, he, and it just didn't make sense to him. And he said he wanted to really find a way to farm without using those chemicals. But he also knew at the time that we couldn't just stop using those chemicals if it was a dysfunctional system. You remove those tools from a system that's not working properly and the, and the whole thing has the potential to collapse. So that's where he really tasked me with, he said, we need to figure out ways to farm without this stuff. So we had to go out and just kind of discover things on our own in our transition took a really long time because we had to bring in one thing at a time. So yeah. one of the first things was, well, let's get rid of the chemical use. Let's really work on eliminating synthetic fertilizers. So we started using some ozone generators on our pivots, which really helped with a lot with blight on the potatoes, allowed us to quit using fungicide out on the potatoes. 
Um, we wanted to get rid of synthetic fertilizers, so we started using compost. Once we started getting that compost out in the soil, we started seeing drastic changes out there. You know, the smell of the soil, the structure of the soil started changing. So then we started going down those paths. It's like, okay, once we got something established, you know, we would introduce a new idea, do it for two or three years. You start to see the benefits of it. And it's like, okay, now what? Now what? Um, I still think probably the biggest change we made that I, I feel like has had the most positive effect is the introduction of plant diversity. All those other things were great using compost and yozono, all those were really good tools, but none of them reached their full potential and we, until we got away from monocultures. Uh, bringing in that very first uh, diverse cover crop was, was still a really good moment for us. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll give Jay Fuhrer a lot of credit. I know you've, you, you've surely have met him many times. Yeah. Um, when we first started growing cover crops, it was still a monoculture we were using it to address some concerns and it was doing a great job. And Jay came to my farm and I was really happy about him being there. I was really proud to show him what we were doing. And Jay being the way he is, was very humble. He said, I, I love what you're doing here, but have you ever thought about plant diversity? And we had a great talk that day. And before he left, we had a seven species mix put together, nice. brought that in the next year. And I still think that was probably the biggest leap forward we ever took in one step. The next year when I had potatoes out there following that diverse cover crop, it was just, it blew my mind. It's like the potatoes were growing themselves. Quality improved overnight. The this, this structure of the soil just really increased. So that was such a big catalyst for us. And so it was just cool because it, it took us a long time to get there, but it was exactly what my uncle was talking about. But it took us a long time to figure out how the pieces all fit together to accomplish those goals of what he initially set out to do. But at the time, there was nobody could hand us a manual on growing potatoes this way. Yeah. It was very counter to what all the people around us were telling. You know, we would go to the universities for help, and their advice was, don't do this. <laughs> don't, don't make these changes. We've told you how to grow potatoes. You need to keep growing them this way. Yeah. So one thing I've, I've said about my uncle in the past, and it's funny being able to talk about this with the format we've got today, is... I think one of the reasons he was able to make these changes is because he didn't go to the coffee shops. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times when people are trying to make these changes, they go to the coffee shops. And like he said, it's a lot of negative. People will tell you all the reasons why you shouldn't do these things. Yeah. He didn't go to the coffee shop. So he didn't hear all that negativity. He had certain goals and a mindset and he was going to do those things because that's what he felt was the right thing to do. And now that we've done them, we can look back and realize he did have a lot of foresight there, but he needed help too. He didn't know how to put all the pieces together and get us there, but he knew where he wanted to be. Yeah. Yeah. The power of a polyculture, right? That polyculture of plants gets you a polyculture of different type of root systems, which yep. gets you that polyculture of soil organisms. And yep. that's where the magic happens. That's where they can create their own fertility. And, and yeah, that, that's just an amazing, it's a whole mindset shift right from that right we're trained and trained and trained on monocultures and i'm i'm trying to every every conference i do and every every place i go i try and make the phrase that the monoculture is ugly <laughs> yeah. you got to get that out of our head that that's pretty right that perfect feel that everything's all one color well straight lines nature yeah. doesn't work like that right that that polyculture that's what's beautiful 
Well, and you, you can even talk to these guys that make biological products or compost teas, and they talk about diversity, right? That's a big selling point on all these different products. But if you apply those products to a monoculture, you're limiting the potential of that product. Yeah. And once you bring in the diversity, those products would work better. But at the same time, once you bring in that diversity, you have less need for those products too. Yeah. You know, that living plant in the soil, it does magical things and things that we can't replicate with any product or any other practice. Just yeah. it is it's real. Once again, right. It's that simple. Put diverse plants out in the soil. And that is such a huge catalyst and that ends up leading to such amazing things just by that simple task. Yeah. That, that would be a very practical advice to give to a producer. Um, yeah. If you could do one thing, you know, better on your operation would be to plant polycultures because that's going to lead to so many different benefits, right? It's going to improve soil, which is going to increase water holding capacity. It's going to get increased nutrients available. I mean, that one step gives us so much. Well, and it's, and it's so hard. The benefits we get from that are so hard to quantify. You and I, we cannot put on paper or have a graph to really show all of the value we're getting from this. And that's where I think a lot of the people with the research get really hung up, right? They want to be able to come in and quantify everything. But at the end of the day, by putting diversity out in my potato crop, I cannot begin to tell you how much benefit, if you want to put a number to it, I, I can't do it. But I can tell you how much I spent on the seed that I put out there. And am I getting the benefit to more than offset the cost of that seed? Absolutely. Yeah. How much more benefit? I don't know. I really it's hard can't. to add up. Well, and I and think, it, and you have short-term gains and you have long-term gains too. I'm still seeing benefits from things that we brought in 10 years ago. And that's yeah. my soil is still improving. And I think that's what's really exciting too. I, we haven't plateaued. We haven't reached that level where nothing else, it's not gaining anymore we are still continuing to see more and more benefit. And that's, that's really cool to see. Modern agriculture needs to be measured in, you know, uh, above ground yield this year, right? What did we produce this year? I think regenerative agriculture, we need to add in, you know, below ground yield and right. long-term benefits because there's so much more to it than just, you know, the yield you get this year above ground. And, and I don't think we talk enough about the human health benefit that come along with these practices either. Yeah. Um, with a lot of what's going on right now with the coronavirus and everything too. One thing that's really bothered me is, you know, they want to vaccinate everybody, isolate everybody, but at no point have I heard the conversations about let's improve our health. So if we are exposed, we can handle it better. Yeah. And I think I, with your, you said you had some immune problems early on. Yeah. You've taken steps to make yourself healthier. So do you feel like, are you to the point now where you could handle something like that better? I think so. Right. Like, um, yeah, exactly. I mean, we're, we're, we're improving our health, right? That's what we need to work on is, is, you know, the prevent the prevention, exactly. right? Like there's more money. I've said this in agriculture in the past in health food and, and everything. There's more money in the cure than there is in the prevention. Yeah. So that's why there's so much, emphasis put on curing things whereas if we could do the prevention right take some steps ahead of time and prevent the disease or the problem from occurring it's so much cheaper but of course the big companies don't make very much money off that so they don't want to promote that <laughs> yeah well i just got done listening to a really good uh, podcast it was a joe rogan podcast and he was interviewing yeah. 
Paul Saladino, and he is a big advocate for uh, the carnivore diet, right? Yeah. And he really opened my eyes to, he was talking about why is the perception of meat consumption so poor in our, in our countries? Yeah. And he, he said the biggest reason why is because the sugar industry put so money towards convincing <laughs> people this. So it took yeah. the heat off of them, Yeah, you know, and I just, we're, we're dealing with so many lies and misconceptions and we just have to get back to those fundamentals again. Like I yeah. said, taking care of the soil. It, it, that's what we need. We don't need these chemicals and products and all these other things. It's more about practices than products. You know, that that's what's really going to change the soil in, in the health of the soil, the health of the plant, the healthy animals and the health of the people. They yeah. all, they are, they are all going to thrive or diminish together. What Brendan just brought up there about the sugar industry, it's actually not made up. It came out a few years ago that in the 60s, the sugar industry paid three Harvard scientists to review industry-led research and publish an article based on that review. That article downplayed the role of sugar and heart disease and pointed the finger, laid most of the blame or more of the blame on saturated fats. I also never heard of ozone generators on pivots before, but honestly, I know very little about dry land irrigation. Ozone, it's a gas, so it's three atoms of oxygen, and it can be used to purify irrigation water. And if you don't know who Jay Fuhr is, he's a soil health specialist who works for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And here is Jay Fuhr's definition of soil health. I found it in an article in Grain News. Soil health is the continued capacity of soil to function as a vital living ecosystem that sustains plants, animals, and humans. Uh, there's a bunch of YouTube videos with Jay Fuhr in it if you want to learn more. So we've got a little garden area. And so we've got some goats that were out on that. And a lot of them were in milk this, this uh, summer. And there was one, the little Nigerian. We just were keeping her over the winter just kind of helping out the lady that owned it. And it's been really interesting watching this goat. So she's in our backyard now with our dogs and we left the grass really long. So it was like, Oh, all this food out here for this goat to eat. Cause that's what we as people think. I was like that she's going to love it. She's going to go crazy in all this grass, right? She's back there eating all the dry weeds along the fence. And that's what she prefers. And it just, I don't know, just like I said, there's, there's some little lessons to be learned there, you know, just we, we, th yeah. we, we think we can force these animals to do these things, but if we just get out of the way, sometimes it's, it's amazing what they're actually going to do because they're a lot smarter than we are at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they know exactly what they need and just the power of observation because that's really when I, so when I first did companion crops in the potatoes, I had, I had already seen what diversity did in the cover crops. So I had that thought in the back of my mind, right? But with growing certified seed, we walk our potato fields and we, so if, if a potato gets a disease, it has visual symptoms and we can pull it and remove it so it doesn't get planted back the next year. Well, we used to grow field peas a long time ago and we'd still get some volunteers here and there. And I was walking through the potato field and I came across this patch of peas. And usually if I saw some weeds or something out there, I would pull them. And I, I went to those peas and I was like, oh, they're not doing any harm. So I guess I'll just leave them be. And it just, that was the moment, right? 
So yeah. I sat there. I mean, I must have stood there probably for 30 minutes and just stared at those peas. <laughs> you know, just there was these peas growing with potatoes. And it just, I, it, I had, it was like a knee jerk reaction. I was like, well, they're not doing any harm. Yeah. Like, wait a minute. So they're not doing any harm. They're climbing up this potato. They're not competing for sunshine. They're not really competing for moisture. They're actually adding nutrient to the soil. Yeah. Oh, man. Why have I been working so hard to get rid of all this other stuff? You know, yeah. so just sometimes you just have those moments and just being able to kind of, guess, keep your ego in check and being able to just realize that maybe you're not doing things perfect. You always have to be open-minded to accepting new ideas. So it was that next spring where I just, I was like, okay, I, I was really comfortable with the idea that I had accepted the fact that they weren't doing any harm. So I was like, well, let's go to the other side. Can I actually do some good by putting them out here? And that's what started it. So then you start off with peas, end up establishing it across the whole field. You get excited about that. Then you're not content anymore. All yeah. right. What else can I put out there? Then yeah, I put what can I do? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Then it was the chickpeas and then we did buckwheat. And then this last one was faba beans. Yeah. It's just, it's really cool when you start bringing those things together and it starts working. Yeah. And I just, I, I should send you one of the pictures. I dug one of the peas out in my potatoes this, this summer. And there was a nodule on this pea plant, this well over the size of a quarter. I mean, just enormous. Really? as wow. big as nodule I've ever seen come out of my field. Uh, this thing was massive but it was so cool and when you start seeing all those things starting to come together but just realizing too just i think a lot of times people are pretty good at recognizing the positive things we're doing right so when i talk about plant diversity people are usually they get it you know it's like oh that seems like a good thing but i it's harder to get them to accept that you have to remove the negative practices in order for those positive practices to work at their best. Yeah. And that's the hardest part for them is to stop doing the damaging things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause most of the guys that have tried doing companion crops around here, a few guys have played around with it, but most of them have failed because they're all using herbicides and they yeah. can't figure out how to do the companion crop with herbicide. Yeah. It's a whole system. Yeah. And we're, we're trained to follow a recipe, right? You do this, 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 and this, and it'll work. But you start changing things. You can't just change one. You've got to look at the whole system and, and try and make it fit together. Yeah. And at the same time, and I'm sure, I'm sure you're the same way when you give presentations too, but I never like going into an area with the mindset that I'm going to tell these people what they need to do. Yeah. That's disastrous. All yeah. I can really do is tell them what I do and why I'm doing it. Lay the fundamentals out there, but as far as how it's going to work in their area, because even Edmonton, I mean, you guys grow potatoes up there, but it's, it's different. It's a different world up there still. So they got to figure out if somebody wants to do this up there, they still have to figure out how to make it work in their area. But yeah. the, the thing I just really pound home is just the fundamentals, the fundamentals. Plant diversity is good. Soil structure, carbon. Yeah. Now you figure out what you need to do to make those things optimal in your area. You take the idea and you adapt it to your environment. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Uh, every every environment has a different advantage and a different disadvantage. So we have to, you know, understand those differences, right? right. I mean, the number of times you've heard, well, you might be able to do that there, but we can't do that here, right? That's so common. But right. we need to take the idea, the concepts and, and adapt them. And that's, that's the power of this is that really the concepts work in any environment. Yeah. 
Well, in, in the potato world specifically, so two of the biggest issues I run into is when I go speak in an area that has late blight in Colorado potato beetle, it's a lot tougher to sell my message there because those are two really devastating things. Now in our area, we're so dry since we're a desert late blight. I've only seen it twice here in my entire life. Yeah. We had really abnormal weather conditions and we had some bad seed that was planted near us. Um, Colorado potato beetle, they do not thrive here. They do not overwinter here. I've never seen a Colorado potato beetle here. So, but it, people will write off everything I'm doing just because I've never addressed those issues personally. <laughs> and I can tell them as I, I'm, I'm very confident that these principles will be effective with those conditions. But at the same time, I've never dealt with them personally. So the last thing I can do is make a guarantee on any of that stuff. So really waiting for some other guys. It'd be great if some potato growers elsewhere really took this extreme approach like I am and, and really find out what it, this is doing in some other areas because it would just strengthen the message for everybody. But it, it is really hard finding guys, especially in vegetable production, doing some of the things I'm doing. I mean, finding ranchers or guys doing small grains, a lot easier. There's a lot more of you guys. Yeah. But in my world, it is really hard finding many people doing these practices. Come on, Brendan. I want a recipe on how to grow potatoes. I want a step-by-step -step instructions on how it will work in Edmonton, Canada. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's where I get frustrated too. Is like I, I can lay out for everybody, here's exactly what I'm doing, right? Yeah. And some people say, cool, I want to adopt 20% of what you're doing but I want to see a hundred percent of the results. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you bet. Yeah, yeah sure. Good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. Let me just sign a blank check and hand it over now. I guarantee it. Yeah. It yeah. just doesn't work that way. Yeah. But again, the concepts do like, I, I think it's amazing that, you know, uh, our operations are very similar, but we're in completely different industries in completely different environments. Right. Right. The, the, the core principles are, are very similar. So what's your favorite uh, potato that you grow? Uh, you know, it, it depends what you're having for dinner. <laughs> you know, everybody always thinks a potato is a potato, right? Yeah. But the main thing for me is they all have different cooking characteristics. Okay. So if I want to make French fries, I'm going to go with a, a more of a yellow potato like a Nicola fry up really well or Kennebec. If I want to boil the potato or mashed potatoes, I like going with Desiree because they hold their shape because they've got a lower solid content. So that's the biggest issue for me. And then fingerlings, I mean, they're in a whole nother category all by themselves. So <laughs> that's what, so really there, you know, everybody wants to know what is the perfect potato doesn't exist. Yeah. You really need just like diversity and everything else we've talked about today. Really, if you want to have a diverse kitchen that meets all of your needs, you need to have, have a diversity yeah. in potatoes that you have access to. Thanks. Interesting. Yeah. See, I'm just the commentator guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> doesn't mean much to me yet. yeah yeah cool. yeah sending you guys a t-shirt that's easy but getting potatoes across the border that's tough <laughs> a little tough i right? can't send you a care package on that one. No, oh darn oh man the paperwork involved is ridiculous now you guys can send potatoes south of the border no problem can we but going the other direction is really tough oh um is it because of uh disease pressure um, we don't have as much up here it's more to do with politics yeah. Um, when I've talked to, when I was up in Edmonton, talking potato farmers up there, they said, we love NAFTA. They said <laughs> NAFTA made it so easy for us to ship potatoes into your country, but oh. it makes it really hard to get them back up here. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so what it, the... it's, yeah, it's politics and paperwork. That's okay. the only issue. 
Okay, one of the things I was told from a potato grower up here is because we don't grow very many potatoes, um, uh -huh. potatoes is, is, you know, it's desirable to, to come from here because there's no, you know, the, the disease pressure isn't, isn't here near as much as in, you know, uh, higher growing potato areas. So, I mean. Yeah, well, and as far as being a seed grower, that's one of my bigger challenges here is you look at certain states and they have commercial production areas and they have seed producing areas. And isolation is huge when it comes to managing disease in potatoes. But we truly are a commercial area here and we're trying to grow seed in a commercial area. Okay. So I'm surrounded with a lot more inoculum. So that's where the aphid pressure really causes problems is the biggest problem we deal with is virus in potatoes and we have to meet certain tolerances. So since I have certified seed, it doesn't mean my plants are 100% virus free. It means they meet certain tolerances, which means I have less than one per, one and a half percent of my crop is less than one and a half percent of my crop has virus in it. That's the tolerance we have to meet. And so if an aphid lands on a potato plant that has a virus in it, they'll feed off of that plant. And then when they go feed off of a, a potato plant that's clean, when they stick their stylet in that leaf, that's when they infect that potato with that virus. Yep. And usually if they feed off of two or three plants after that, at that point, the stylet is cleaned up. Inoculated with virus. Any aphid coming in more than likely has that virus in its body. And so that's one of the other thing that has really been nice about the diversity in the potato crop is if I have other plants out there for the aphid to feed off of before they get to my potatoes, that's another tool as far as having them clean their stylet before they get to the potato. And usually when I have companion crops out there, if I do find aphid, they tend to be on the companion crop instead of their preferred diet. So given, given them options and giving them places to clean up, and then plus the pollen and nectar for their food source and a habitat, I mean, it just rarely is it one thing because when we deal with problems, they're very complex problems. But I think that's where we've run into troubles. We have these complex problems, but we think somehow we're going to find simple solutions. <laughs> so when, for every problem I have on my farm, I like having more than one thing I'm doing to solve that problem. Because I've had more complex solutions. And I don't mean complex as far as hard to pull off, but I have several different tools working together at the same time that increases my chance of success as far as dealing a complex problem. Yeah. It's not as easy. It's not just following a recipe. Right. But at yeah. the same time, but it is easy. You know, that's where we get con conflicted, right? We just talked about, yeah, think, it's, think about it's a complex system, but correcting that system can be very easy. Put plant diversity out there. That's the foundation of it. I mean, start there. We would, we would solve so many problems in agriculture by simply getting rid of monocultures. <laughs> that would be a yeah. huge, huge step. And then right all the other is, problems I think would be much easier. Yeah. Right there is why our presentations were so similar. <laughs> yeah. Get rid yeah. of the monoculture. Yeah. yeah. All if, of all the things I'm doing right now, if, if I was forced for some weird reason to get rid of some of the practices, the one that would be the last to leave my farm would be plant diversity. That's how strongly... I feel its presence is on my farm in my operation. Okay. So you probably just answered it. I was going to ask you, um, what would you say to the local grain farmers around me who are resistant to the, you know, the idea they're traditional grain farmers. Um, what would you say to them to, 
to you know maybe get them to open up their mind a little bit to to look into some of this. Well, I mean, I, I've seen a lot of good things going on out there in small grains as far as bringing in diversity. And whenever I've seen it, I, I've seen nothing but positives coming from it. I mean, putting some legumes out there with barley and some, some small grains. Um, we're traditionally, uh, the area where we are, there's a lot of malting barley that is grown. And most of it goes to Coors Brewing Company. Yep. And so they've got a research farm that was like five miles from us. And one of them came to me one time and they knew what we were doing as far as soil health and all this stuff. And they had some pressure from the corporate level and it came down to them. Yeah. You know, you guys need to do something with soil health. I, you know, it, it's a good PR move. Yeah. And so we set up some trials and we, we did some different um, plots out there with some different clovers and legumes out in the barley. And they saw great success um, early on, you know, so they did uh, some different clovers. Uh, they did, chickpeas and some lentils and all these different things out there and it was it was funny like i said the mindset shift right so one of the concerns was how are we going to use herbicide if we have this diversity out here and so they said well for the sake of these experiments we just won't use that herbicide because we want the cover the companion crop to thrive yep. so they plant some diversity out there and then at the end of the year they realized well ha by having that diversity out there we actually had really good ground cover and we never had any weeds to come up to begin with. So we really didn't need the herbicide. Yeah. See, they had to get like tricked into getting there. Um, you, then as things came along, they, they saw some really good things with the yield. Uh, the biggest challenge was just harvesting the crop because the barley was dry, but some of the companion crops were still green. Yeah. Moved to stripper header. There was, there was ways around that. Um, they felt pretty good about it. They had the different plots out there harvested separately. And here's where it got real fun is they, they malted them all separately and brewed small batches of beer with the different barley. Yeah. And the one that was grown with the yellow sweet clover had a different flavor to it. And they all thought it was very pleasant. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I love yeah. sweet clover. But it didn't, and all it took is they had just had to open up their minds a little bit and they had to be willing to try something. So the, the fact that the sweet clover plant was grown beside the barley plant changed the flavor in the barley beer. That's what they said. They every single one there that was sampling it, they take the the beer tasted different and not in a bad way. They said, "Oh, yeah. that's pretty good." And it must have been strong enough for I mean for it to come through that whole process. And that kind of amazes me. I mean, to go through that brewing process and have that flavor go all the way through there is yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah. And then, then the other thing I thought was interesting driving by the next, uh, spring, let's see, it was probably in the fall after that barley crop. I knew where they had their plots out there, you know, it was a full circle, but they had smaller plots out there and we get uh, sandhill cranes that migrate through here and out in their field, there was this rectangle of cranes out in the middle of this round field. And it's because they were all landing in, they had a food source out there where those, it was uh, some, I think it was probably the lentils or something went to maturity and they had some seed out there to feed off of. It was funny. Those, those cranes were crammed into that box where they had that plot out there, you know? So yeah. that's, what's really nice about just taking these different approaches is sometimes it's surprising what other benefits you might get by just opening up your mind a little and taking a different approach. And I think it's great when you can see that. Yep. And I, I think there's potential around here <clears throat> with some of this barley, as far as when it's harvested, if you could get 
a companion crop established in these grains, harvest off the grain, and then you still have something green underneath, then the guys with the sheep and the cattle have something, another, you know, some feed value out there. So what if you could get some pasture rent by being able to come in after the barley and graze off the green that's underneath there? In episode 34, we talk about intercropping, which is similar to companion cropping, but the major difference is in an intercropping system, you want to harvest the multiple crops you've planted. You usually don't harvest the companion crop in a companion cropping system. The companion crop serves a different function, like distracting aphids or weed suppression. In our intercropping episode, we talked about a couple of studies that showed in an intercropping system you got better weed suppression, and in an intercropping system often you got higher yields than in a monoculture system. To even understand how this is possible, you have to compare the two systems based on the equivalent amount of land that was required to produce a single crop. Take wheat, for example. Last year's final Alberta crop report said we got 54 bushels of spring wheat to the acre. I'm going to go out on a limb here and just assume that 99% of Alberta wheat production is done in a monoculture system. So for a comparison, that 54 bushels, that'll be for a monocrop. And let's compare it with an intercropping system that's wheat canola. So the question at this point is, how many acres of wheat canola would it take to produce 54 bushels of wheat? You'd assume, or at least I would assume, you simply double the acreage. So two acres of wheat canola to get 54 bushels of wheat. But because of the beneficial interaction between the wheat and the canola, it's more like one and four-fifths of an acre to produce 54 bushels of wheat. Put another way, if you measured the amount of land that it took to produce the wheat and only the wheat in that wheat canola system, you'd actually be getting closer to 64 bushels of wheat to the acre. Plus on top of that, you got all that canola to harvest. This is something called overyielding. You can learn all about overyielding and intercropping in episode 34. Over the last four years of hosting this podcast, I've successfully avoided learning about stripper headers, even though they've come up on the podcast before. You heard Brendan just mention it there, so I feel like today is my day of reckoning. I'm going to have to do some learning. Instead of a straight cut, a stripper header on your combine strips the seeds from the very top of the stalks of the crop you are harvesting. The article I found on stripper headers in the Western Producer is actually quite recent. I've interviewed a few farmers in Manitoba, and one of them said he noticed that he was burning less fuel using a stripper header. It was also an indication to him that his combine was probably going to last a little bit longer. Apparently, and I also got this from the article, Stripper headers are being used by some regenerative farmers as a way to get away from using desiccants. We right. actually did that experiment with the Gateway Research Organization this year. We, yeah. uh, we had a wheat crop. I think it would have worked better with barley, but we had a wheat crop and uh, seeded it. He, he's a traditional grain farmer still, so he wanted to spray it. Uh, once it was sprayed, we went back in and we interseeded a companion crop with it. So it, we did a couple of 
different experiments with that. We did one just as a straight monoculture as the, as the base uh, comparison. We did one with four additional species plus the wheat, and then we did seven species plus the wheat, and we did 16 species plus the wheat. Um, we had a very wet year this year, and I think a bunch of it flooded, so we didn't get our results that we wanted. Um, right. The wheat did okay, so it didn't hurt our the wheat crop at all. So the grain farmer side was still happy, but there wasn't quite enough to go out there, you know, worthwhile for me to take cattle out there. But the positive for the grain farmer, he still had that diversity of plant roots growing out there late into the season. Yeah. So even without the cattle going out there, he's still going to get some benefit out of that. Uh, we're right. going to try it again, but the experiment kind of didn't work. But uh, you learn just as much from the failures as you do the successes. So we're yeah. keep at it. Well, and it's funny, you, you talk about being too wet. Now, that's a problem I rarely have to deal with. You know, if we get a two-inch rain, that was a, quite a, a diluge for us. But I was talking to somebody earlier this morning about uh, soil structure. You know, so when I talk about all the, the you know, the, the subjects that always come up first for me is plant diversity. Then following that is carbon cycling and soil structure. So we were talking about soil structure and the value of it. And I think what's so great about things like soil structure is soil structure is great in my area where I usually have a lack of water because I want that high infiltration rate and I want a, a, a high water holding capacity. But yeah. then you talk to somebody in an area where they tend to have too much water. Yeah. Guess what the solution is? Good soil structure. You know, oh. so I, I think it's great that soil structure works on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. So it's a goal that we all have. It's not like some people in one area want good soil structure, but in some other environment, you actually want poor soil structure. I mean, I've, I've yet to run into that guy. You want good soil structure no matter what. Yeah. The problem is that the, the modern day solution to that is drainage right? Yeah. Ditch it, let the water run off instead of let it infiltrate and, and hold onto it and let, let it soak away. Right. We're trying to drain it and that's just causing all sorts of other problems down the, down the yeah. road. Right? Well, I think that's one. Yeah. And I think that's one thing both of us do well in our presentations is talking about getting away from that linear thought process. Right. So here you have a waterlogged yeah. soil. The solution is very direct. Oh, put in drainage problem solved. Right. No, what yeah. it means is getting some diversity out there and building soil structure and getting carbon, doing these things now so you don't have the problem later. And, and that's that's yeah. one of the bigger challenges is guys want that quick fix. You know, give me, yeah. give me, give me the Band-Aid. Let me fix this. I don't have to worry about it. And it just, you have to invest some time and some thought into these things if you want actual solutions to the problems. I think too often we're too content to avoid the problem. Yeah. Where you and I, we like to solve the problem. Yeah. That's where that, we need to that, grain, that grain land that I took over two years ago, it was low land and it's been grain farmed for, I'm going to say, 20 years at least. Uh, so the root systems never are allowed to go down very deep, right? It's right. always a grain crop of some kind. And lots of times you couldn't even harvest it because it would get too wet. And so my first day, it was waterlogged. Like the cattle were walking through 11 inches of water, right? Yeah. It just, it wouldn't go anywhere. So my goal is to get some root systems in there to dig deep, right? Some good fibrous roots to dig down and open up the soil and allow it, that water to drain away. Um, already this year, it's only the second year we had it. We had another wet year, which is kind of rare for us. I mean, compared to you, we're always wet, but uh, it was really wet again. And already this year, it was draining away, right? Just getting those, those root systems in there. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how much that improves over the next few years. I can get those perennials digging deep. 
Yeah. And, and look at what a simple solution that was, right? It was that simple. Put seed in the soil. Yeah. yeah. It just had to be some different seed. You had to put some thought into it. But the solution is really that simple. Yeah. For these grain guys, too, the Gateway Research Organization here, we, we got in some uh, Kernza wheat seed. Have you heard of yeah. that? We grew just yeah. a little bit out in the garden, small patch. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we it's really hard to get the seed up here in Canada. Across the border is a difficult thing. But I got a little bag full of it here a year or so ago. And we seeded some some trials with the uh, with all the other grains too, right? So mm -hmm. we're going to see how that does. We've got a perennial rye and we've got a perennial wheat. I yeah. think that's going to be an amazing tool for you know regenerative grain farming in the future. And that root system on that turns of wheat, man, I love that picture going around where that root is about eight or nine feet deep. Yeah, that's what we need. Yep, and it's you know these ancient grains back when we didn't weren't as involved at screwing things up you know <laughs> we've done a really good job in agriculture and making things really tough for ourselves now yeah. so going back to those fundamentals you've heard us talk about perennial grains before on this podcast in our field days or even on our youtube channel a quick side note about our youtube channel dong gianni who's a producer in olds alberta he did a webinar with us about his passive solar greenhouse, which is it's really a thing to behold. But we recorded that webinar, threw it up on YouTube, and now it's just blowing up. It nearly has 4,000 views, which for us, that's a lot. So congrats, Gianni. We're going to turn you into a YouTube star yet. So Kernza is the trademark name for the perennial wheat the Land Institute in Kansas developed. For the Land Institute, perennial grains, oil seeds, pulses, it's a pretty big priority for them, as is regenerative agriculture in general. In episode 21, we talk about perennial rye that's being tested out by the University of Alberta. So that little patch of Kernza that Steve has, that might be the only patch of Kernza in all of Alberta. According to the Land Institute, Kernza has a root system that can go down about 10 feet or more. In good conditions, it produces more seeds than annuals. You have grazing for cattle after you obviously combine it with your stripper header, now that I know what that thing actually does. And because of that vast root system, just think about how much carbon you can get into your soil, uh, the access to nutrients and moisture that, that plant has you'll probably save money on chemical inputs as well as tractor fuel with something like a perennial wheat. The Breton Plus just southwest of Edmonton, that's where the University of Alberta is doing their trials with perennial rye. And I think, and I don't know if this experiment is still going on, and I believe it was Egg Canada near Lethbridge, they had a plot where they were doing perennial wheat. You know, when you talk to other potato farmers every single year, we have the same conversation. They went to some meeting and found out that EPA is going to come in and outlaw some chemical. Yeah. And these guys get real nervous and they think we can't farm without it. And I have to sit there and say, what, did, what does that chemical do? You know, because already, I'm already farming without those chemicals. So I'm really trying to encourage them, figure out ways to not have to rely on those. So if, you, if they ever get removed, you're not as worried about it. Yeah. You know, but once again, if you're, if you have, if you're working within a, a dysfunctional system, you are going to be more dependent on those band-aid type tools. Yeah. So we, we have to fix from the ground up, fix the system. 
I was in a discussion here a while ago and, and we posed the question, what would you do if there was a 50% increase on the price of fossil fuels? So that would mean the fuel you burn, but also because the fertilizer and chemical companies right. use fossil fuels to make or manufacture that, those would all be increased by 50% too. So fuel, right. fertilizer, chemical, fungicide, pesticide, all those, a 50% increase in that. What would, how would that change your farm? Right. I did my math. It would raise my expenses by $6,000 yep. on my full farm. Wow. How bad? <laughs> so, not a big deal, right? Yeah. Whereas yeah, I, I can live with that. Yeah. Whereas what kind of that's going to cut into some pretty slim margins on other operations. Oh, it's going to destroy some like some of the fuel bills alone. Yeah. Fuel, fertilizer, and chemical bills on some of these big grain farms. If yeah. you increase that by fifty percent, that's you know hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> there goes all your profits. So yeah, that would be, and that could happen, right? Could happen in a heartbeat. Yeah, unfortunately, I think we are that vulnerable that that could be an overnight situation. Yeah, throw a tax on that, a, a you know a green tax on on all fossil fuels. Man, that that could hurt. <laughs> yeah, some somebody drops a bomb in the wrong neighborhood. I mean, you know, it could yeah. set off a, a, a chain reaction like that. Yeah, we even talked about that. We've got uh, our big oil in, in Alberta is uh, Fort McMurray. Probably heard of Fort McMurray. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a huge fire up there because it's all wilderness up there, right? It's all swamp and, and trees. And there was a huge fire that broke up out there. And, and it was close. They evacuated the entire city of Fort McMurray, right? Almost those refineries could have been burnt to the ground, right? If that would have happened, like that's a major source. I mean, the price of fuel would have gone up, even if we probably would have, you know, wouldn't have even had fuel in some places because right. it wouldn't have been able to be delivered, right? It would have just right. totally crippled the whole system. And can you survive without fuel? What if you right. couldn't buy fuel for a month? Well, how would your farm operate, right? A, a few years ago, we, we put our shop on uh, solar power, not to be environmental, but to be sustainable, right? If we right. lost power for a month, my deep freezers are still running. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it could very easily happen. Even if it was just taxed, though, and the price of your fuel went up, can your farm still operate? Can you, can you still make that happen? Yeah, and one, one of our biggest one of our biggest vulnerabilities here is electricity. Just because we since we are irrigated with all the center pivots, if we lost power to those pivots, you can survive for a day or two. But in our, in our climate, you know, when when you get a rain up there, you get an inch of rain up there, you guys can hold on to it for a while. But here, I mean, I, on on you know, kind of general rule of thumb is I'm running a sprinkler every three days, and, and without that sprinkler running constantly, yeah. we we have sandy soils and an arid climate. We don't we don't hold on to it. We don't have play out there to hold on to that extra water. So what would happen on your farm if you couldn't get the irrigation now that you've already built your land? What do you mean exactly? I mean, it started as desert, right? When you right. kind of probably took it over. Now right. that you've had irrigation out there, you've built water holding capacity, you've got ground cover. H how bad would it be? I mean, compared to your neighbors, <laughs> I guess, right. um, if you couldn't irrigate for a year. I think our environment is so fragile here that even with what I've done with our soils. And so you got to keep in mind. So, I mean, the neighbors probably have an organic matter of about 0.5%. I've, I've done a good job and built mine to about 1.5. Yeah. 
you know, so it might be triple what the neighbors are, but 1.5 still isn't very much. Yeah. I think if we were to remove that irrigation, it would not take, it would take a lot less time to revert back to that degraded system than the amount of time it took us to build it. I just, the long-term potential, I mean, I, in my environment with the soils I've got, I've got to constantly be building that soil back up, especially in the potato world. I mean, there's, there's tillage in my place there. The, the process of harvesting is always setting you back a little bit. So I have to do all the things I do each year just to stay even and hopefully a little ahead. But once, yeah, if we lost irrigation and didn't, didn't have the ability to grow those green plants out there in a couple of years, I think, my fields versus the neighbor's field would be almost identical. Yeah. I think it would degrade very quickly. Your difficulty is maintaining that soil cover. Yeah. You've got to till yeah, it all the time. Yeah. And you know, I could send you some aerial shots of our Valley and you can tell exactly where the sprinkler ends. Oh, you yeah. know? So yeah. we don't have that irrigation. There's nothing growing in the corners. Some years you get a little more rain at a certain time. You might get a little more kosher growing out there or something, but for the most part, if we don't have irrigation, there's not much growing here. And so the world we're living in, and so that's what's funny when you start talking about organic matter, you know, so I've been able to build my soils up to one and a half percent organic matter. But when you go and look at the organic matter of the native soils that are beyond the reach of that irrigation, we're talking about zero, zero point zero. You know, you need living plants to take that carbon from the atmosphere and add it to the soil. So you remove that one component of a living plant, you completely stop that carbon cycling out there. So without the introduction of the irrigation, we were able to come in and change this landscape. It's a totally different environment that we have with the ability to irrigate. You remove irrigation, this place, the the land value would would crash. There there would be absolutely no reason to be here without You'd have to switch to owning cows. Well, and even then, I mean, they wouldn't have much to eat, you know, and they're not going to taste very good eating uh, rabbit brush and some of that other stuff. So, yeah, yeah it, it wouldn't, it would not be good at all. And so that's why our, our biggest concerns around here is water and it, and it's, it's a lack of water due to some environmental issues. But the other big concern is people politics. We've got people coming in and trying to take our water away all the time. They want to build a pipeline and pump the water from beneath us so that the people up in Denver can have homes. And that's a constant battle here. And I don't, you know, those people want some water so they can flush their toilets, but you you don't really need a toilet if you have nothing to eat. So I (laughs) I don't understand. It's very short-sighted of them to be willing to remove irrigation from agricultural production. Yeah. We are uh, a very small percentage of the population. Yeah. The urban centers are way, way bigger and way more clout than we do. So, um, yeah. And that's the trouble is if it comes down to a vote, a vote we're going to lose. Yeah. You know, sure. we have, we own more of the land mass, but that doesn't really translate to votes. And we, we could be devastated in a very short time here if our water is taken away. Like I said, without irrigation, nobody's, nobody's making a living here. Yeah. We, we would have no other choice but to leave with the water. All right. Well, thank you very much for spending some time with us, Brendan. Oh, I'm, for sure. Yeah, I'm happy to uh, you know chit chat with you anytime. Uh, I'm missing the conferences and the seminars that we go to where we get to actually sit down and do this in person. Um, yeah, it's amazing how valuable that has been to me over the years. Is meeting people like you and sitting down after the conference. And I was thinking here the other day, where did I get my education from? 
over the last 20 years, pretty well, it's by going to conferences and seminars. Yeah. Whether I'm speaking at them or just attending them, man, that's where I got my education from. So yeah, um, I missed that and hope, hopefully we'll see you down the road here soon. Yeah, and well, that's one thing I've said constantly too is other farmers are the number one resource, educational resource for me. You know, yeah. there's books and different things or whatever, but just sitting down and talking to farmers has so much value. So appreciate you doing this and it, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Awesome. Thanks, Brendan. God bless. All right. Thank you. As much as my obsession, my passion about potatoes was the main reason for this episode, the part that stuck with me the most by the time I got to the end of the interview was actually the part that was said in the first 10 minutes. That was that part about coffee shops and how you shouldn't let the guys in the coffee shop get you down or hold you back. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions works with a lot of egg producers who are, how should I put this? adventurous. They try innovative things. So this one comes up a lot. In episode 33 of the podcast, uh, Kurt Hale, who's a producer up in peace country, he just laid it out there. He said, listen, when you try new things, a lot of people are going to think you're the village idiot for the next little while. And you just have to accept that. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of you listening to this right now who can relate to that. So my question is, how did it come to this? I didn't grow up in a farming family. I'm still learning a lot about farming culture. I get how none of us want to see somebody close to us fail. And that does happen when you try new things. Not always, but it can happen. I also know that when somebody says they're going to try this new land management practice, that there is sometimes that little voice of (laughs) self-doubt that pops up and says, shoot, what's that say about me? Am I doing something wrong with my land? So I get all that, and there's definitely a place for constructive criticism. But there's also a place for support and encouragement. You heard what Steve and Brendan said just at the end there. The most valuable resource out there for producers to learn how to do new things to improve their operations is other producers. And it's a shame that a lot of folks have to drive all the way to Edmonton for a conference to tap into that vital resource. And it's a problem because right now you just can't do that because of COVID. So I'd like to see the coffee shop fill this void. I'm not saying we all have to agree with everyone on everything. But I'd argue it doesn't take much effort to hear somebody out and to be a little less of a uh, Derek Downer when it comes to new ideas. Just think of the agricultural system in Alberta we could build if we did just that. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based organization empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs farm field days, workshops, webinars. We do this podcast. We produce a farmer's blog. And we help rural communities develop their own community-owned renewable energy projects. For more information about us, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. Big thank you to Amber and Grow for the audio file. If you want to find out more information about the Gateway Research Organization, go to gatewayresearchorganization.com. The Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Marie Galanka and Athabasca. Brenda Barrett and Alex, 
Trina Moyles and Jennifer Ford in Peace Country, and myself, Derek Leahy, in Calgary, at least for now. Kieran Mountain of Mountain Media edited this episode. My parts of the episode were recorded in Calgary. That means my parts of the episode were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in Métis Region 3. The podcast receives funding from a variety of foundations in Alberta and across Canada. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the climate is good for the farm.